0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Brigitte Lenormand about her new book, Citizens Without Borders Yugoslavia and its Migrant Workers in Western Europe, which was published by University of Toronto Press just this year in 2021. Welcome, Brigitte. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Dr. Lenorman currently works at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Her research focuses on socialist Yugoslavia's global entanglements, a topic she has approached through the lens of urban planning and development, labor migration, and Yugoslavia's merchant marine. Her first book, Designing Tito's Capital, Urban Planning, Modernism, and Socialism in Belgrade, was published by University of Pittsburgh Press, In 2014. She is the principal investigator of Rijeka In Flux, Borders and Urban Change After World War II, a multidisciplinary and international project funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada. So Brigitte, can you tell our listeners how you became interested in this topic?
0: Well, while I was working on my first book, Designing Tito's Capital, I became interested in the growth of informal settlements in socialist Yugoslavia and in my specific case around Belgrade. And I chatted with people who lived in a couple of these settlements and they all said the same thing, that many of the houses had been built by labor migrants or gastarbayteri as they called them. And I kept hearing this story And I realized that it was part of a kind of lore about labor migrants. So I became interested in the stories that people tell about migrants, and eventually in the stories that migrants tell about themselves, and in the tensions or discrepancies between these stories. Great.
1: And actually, uh, as a follow-up, I wanted to return to the title of your book, which includes the designation, Our Citizens. Um, And in the book, you make this distinction between different types of migrants. So what is entailed by this designation, our citizens? Uh, Who is included in this designation? Who's excluded? And so maybe you can talk about this and also elaborate on the different categories of, of people that left Yugoslavia, the different types of migrants.
0: So the Yugoslav state was really eager to distinguish between different categories of people who had left Yugoslavia. Uh, namely, they distinguished between what they called Iselianici, uh, political immigrants, and short-term economic migration. *Iseljanić* literally means uh, the person who has moved away. And these were migrants who had left for the most part before the Second World War, and who were either neutral or positively disposed towards socialist Yugoslavia. The political immigrants were immigrants who had also usually left earlier, or during the war, or immediately afterwards, and who were actively hostile to socialist Yugoslavia. Um, And then finally, the short-term economic migrants, who were also known as uh, our workers living abroad or our citizens living abroad. That's a category that emerged in the mid-1960s to describe Yugoslavs who had left Yugoslavia legally to work abroad with the intention to return after a few years. And they were presumed to be unskilled or low skilled uh, people who had left out of need from economically depressed regions who were loyal to Yugoslavia and who would maintain close ties with home. And this comes back to you know, these categories come back to what you know James Scott f- famously called seeing like a state. Um, putting people into cut and dry categories allowed the Yugoslav state to define policy objectives and policies in relation to these populations. And while its dealings with the Isiljanitsy and the political emigration fell into the category of foreign policy, it had to continue to govern the third category, our citizens or our workers. And that's a very different sort of policy orientation. And I should note that it's not particular to Yugoslavia or to state socialism. So, the Canadian government, for example, uses a very subjective process of evaluating ties and future plans to determine whether or not you're a resident. And then this has major implications for your taxation status. Um, so, of course, migrants don't actually neatly fall into clear cut categories. And that's one of the things that's at the heart of this book. Over time, it became clear that labor migrants were not necessarily unskilled or low skilled or from economically depressed regions. In fact, they could be skilled and leaving major cities and in fact, you know, understood to be part of a brain drain. Um, they were also often attracted by higher incomes that were available abroad as opposed to simply driven by need. Um, They formed ties abroad by marrying local women, uh, for the most case, we're talking about men, uh, and learning the language or bringing their families with them and establishing themselves in a more durable way. Um, Their stays became indefinite or cyclical. Um, And some of these migrants uh, either were or became quite critical of Yugoslavia, whether it was because of interactions with political emigrants, Um, or due to their own life experience. So ultimately, this book is about the Yugoslav state's efforts to govern those citizens and its anxieties in relation to them, and how this in turn drove efforts to build and maintain ties through cultural and educational programming.
1: Great. And that actually relates to my next question, which is about your sources. So could you tell us a bit about the sources you draw on for this book? And Also discuss some of the challenges associated with using them?
0: Sure. Um, So I would say the bulk of what I use is um, archival sources, Um, in particular, the archives of different agencies that preoccupied themselves with monitoring labor migration and building ties with migrants, Um, specifically um, in Yugoslavia at the federal level. And at the Republican level, I focused on Croatia because... Um, of the overrepresentation um, of of Croatian labor migrants and their politicization in the Croatian Spring, so this includes different committees attached to the federal government and the Croatian Republican, uh, Republican government. Um, and while I didn't look at the Foreign Ministry archives, I also uh, these these various funds also include a lot of diplomatic correspondence. I also looked at um, the fond associated with the Socialist Alliance of Working People of Yugoslavia, which was sort of the umbrella organization for all mass organizations in Yugoslavia. I looked at the uh, fond of Matica Hrvatska uh, Istvianica, which was the the, uh, institution or organization charged with maintaining relations with people, uh, with like Yugoslavs outside of Yugoslavia. Um, And specifically, those were organized uh, on a Republican level. And so I I looked at the Croatian one. And uh, in particular, I looked at uh, documents related to the Institute for Migration and Nationality, which reported to uh, this Matica. Um, And um, that included some fascinating materials, in particular letters to a radio program that was designed for and broadcast to labor migrants across Western Europe. Um, who were from Yugoslavia, and also um, a font containing individual responses to a survey that was conducted in 1970-1971 in order to establish the conditions under which migrants were willing to return to Yugoslavia. Uh, Aside from archives, I looked at social scientific publications from the time period because I was interested in how social scientists framed migrants and, and what kind of data they collected on them. I um, looked at uh, documentary and fictional films uh, that featured migrants. I was interested in what they told us about popular perceptions of migrants and also how filmmakers used migration as a prism through which to criticize Yugoslavia. Um, I also read newspapers that were uh, targeted at migrants and uh, textbooks that were aimed at the children of migrant workers In terms of uh, challenges that I faced, uh, I think I can name um, a few. One of them was the sheer abundance of material. Uh, And I'm thinking in particular of the survey results. There was over a thousand um, of these individual responses to look at. I think I I may have looked at a quarter to a third of all of these, but I I wasn't able to get through everything. And they were they were fascinating, but they were really time consuming to read through. Um, They were handwritten and the calligraphy could be really challenging. And this was also uh, true of the letters to the radio program, but I, I was actually able to look through all that material. With the surveys, I wondered whether I missed some that might have revealed a different perspective because they were all so unique. Um, So I had to settle on a sample and that was a bit unsatisfying, but what can you do? Uh, It was also challenging to figure out how to present the material, in particular, how to identify the respondents, uh, both in the footnotes and in the text. So both in terms of sort of the, you know, the scholarly apparatus um, and the the verifiability of what I was saying, but also in terms of really presenting individuals that could be distinguished from one another. Um, And I was working with both truly anonymous responses and respondents who chose to identify themselves. And so I had to balance the task of presenting these voices with the ethical need of protecting their privacy, because although some of them clearly expected and wanted to be published, Others um, don't don't kind of aren't quite as explicit about that. So ultimately, I decided to stick with first names um, and the first letter of the last name and in some cases, fictive names. Um, So that that's that's, you know, I had to make some choices in relation to that. And I also I found it extremely rewarding, but also really challenging to work with film While I was able to get copies of some of the films, um, for others, I was only able to screen the film once in a private viewing just for me. (laughs) And the sound quality was not always great. These are, you know, original films that are kept at the Balkan Film Institute in Belgrade. So as a result, I was dependent on my notes to write this chapter up. Um, And this, you know, I really only started to write once I had seen as many films as I could. And as a result, I think the ones I wrote most copiously about and thought the most about were films that I'd managed to get a copy of and could see more than once to sort of verify my thinking around these things. Uh, And it's a similar story with the radio program and also the newspapers. The radio program I was only able to access snippets of um, from Radio Televisia Zagreb. Um, Just to get a general idea of what this program was about, they weren't willing to give me access to more, and they were not willing to give me copies for some reason. Um, And the newspapers, it was very difficult to secure a complete run of them. So I was stuck trying to reconstitute a larger story based on fragments. So it's kind of the opposite. It's not the abundance, but the fragmentary nature of the record that was the issue here. In contrast, the government sources were much more straightforward. They're the kinds of sources I've worked with before. I know how to work with them. I understand how to read them obliquely, and I know what their strengths are and what their limitations are. But on their own, they're much flatter. And I really wanted to provide a variety of different voices, and these other sources allowed me to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really appreciated about your book is this multi-level view of the migrant and their experiences of course, it's necessary to flesh out and complicate the political portrait, so the portrait produced by the state, but it also really adds dimension, right, to the lives of these migrants. You really get a sense of their daily struggles, uh, their joys, their concerns, Um, and so this focus on the quotidian uh, aspects of of the migrants' experiences is, is really important. And so, This is just such a rich uh, cultural and everyday life history of migration. And on that, could you tell our listeners uh, a bit more about these migrants? So why did certain Yugoslavs choose to leave? And while you're doing that, maybe discuss a bit about the federative uh, structure uh, of Yugoslavia and its ethno-national character. And, you know, do we see certain people migrating from certain regions? I know we do, but but why is this the case? Uh, and why do they feel like it's necessary for them to leave the country?
0: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so Yugoslavia, first of all, um, one should note that um, it was initially part of the Eastern Bloc. Um, in 1948, um, there is a rupture with Stalin, and it kind of goes its own way, but it retains um, its same kind of desire to keep its borders closed and and prevent its citizens from crossing uh, the border to go elsewhere. Um, So that's the first important thing to note. Um, The second thing that you've alluded to is, uh, yeah, it's it's a a federation uh, made up of several republics um, and um, so the, the governance structure of Yugoslavia is that there's the federation, which has certain prerogatives, and then the republics that have prerogatives. And then also with the implementation of self-management, starting in 1953 at the factory level and eventually uh, taking on more and more importance politically, um, then you get also the local level being implemented, uh, implicated in policy and and in sort of you know, running various kinds of programs. Um, and this in turn is reflected in anything that I talk about in my book. Um, you know, n- none, of these policies relating to migrants were ever exclusively, um, directed at the federal level. They always involved cooperation between the different levels of government. And that's one of the fascinating stories in this book that are threads that goes through is, um, how, you know, to what extent that collaboration worked um, and what kinds of tensions um, emerged, particularly since I focus on Croatia. And of course, in the 1970s, you have the Croatian national revival um, that in which Croatia starts to sort of contest its position within Yugoslavia. And in fact, labor migration is one of the the hot points in this uh, argument, control over worker remittances in particular, and economic policy that was uh, driving so many uh, Croats to seek work abroad. So that's, that's another piece of contextual information. In terms of why some Yugoslavs chose to migrate and why uh, Yugoslavia allowed them to. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's the story that we've always told about this, um, which is one of these sort of common sense stories that it was a response to economic reforms in the early 1960s that increased unemployment, um, a kind of safety valve to prevent the buildup of disgruntled unemployed people in Yugoslavia. In fact, it's a more complicated story um, and uh, Ulf Brunbauer in particular has talked about this. Um, First of all, there was a lot of bottom up pressure, uh, people crossing illegally, um, you know, unabated from the 1940s into the early 1960s. And the numbers of these people were increasing Um, And Francesca Rolandi has written a lot about this. Um, And and this this border crossing, illegal border crossing was problematic um, because it forced people into illegality uh, and disrupted their relationship to to Yugoslavia as citizens. And it forced the state to invest resources into border control. Um, In general, Yugoslavia in the 60s wanted to shift to an open border regime, both for reasons of global prestige and to participate in global tourism. Um, it, it, it saw this as a way of, uh, of getting foreign currency, right? Um, and Igor Chukharin has written a lot about this tourism piece. And it seems that the Yugoslav state moved towards liberalizing its border regime gradually after a period of observation, um, relying a lot on the activities of, as I mentioned, the Matitse Isalianike who were mediating with, uh, with people leaving Yugoslavia. Um, and they were, they were really kind of interested in the potential to capture foreign currency from worker remittances. And so you know, there are a number of different factors that kind of drove Yugoslavia, first to liberalize its border regime, and then to answer um, the, 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 you know, the, the growing demand on the part of West European states for labor um, and uh, and sort of, you know, work actively with these states to facilitate uh, workers leaving Yugoslavia to work abroad.
1: So, when did this migration begin? I mean, I know you also mentioned in the book that this is not just obviously um, unique to the Cold War context. It's happening um, historically, right? You have migrants uh, leaving the region earlier to head off to parts of Western Europe and even the U.S. But um, in terms of the post-war period, when does this migration begin and what types of legal agreements existed between Yugoslavia and the host states in, in Western Europe?
0: So the liberalization of the border regime and of pass access to passports and visas to cross um, happened in, I believe, 1964, 1963, 1964, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's 1964, And uh, Yugoslavia then uh, tried to establish bilateral agreements with various West European states, which would allow them to control the flow of migrants. Um, And it was able to do this with France in 1965, and then with Austria and Sweden in 1966, and then with the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany in 1968. And these agreements dictated all manner of things relating to to labor migration, such as how workers would be recruited, what their working conditions would be, and how their salaries would be regulated, what kind of rights they had in terms of social security. Um, In some cases, Yugoslavia sent teachers and social workers abroad through these official mechanisms. Um, So it was quite comprehensive and Yugoslavs, when, when these bilateral uh, relationships were set up, Yugoslavia, uh, Yugoslavs could apply for jobs abroad through their employment bureaus in Yugoslavia. In some cases, foreign authorities even conducted medical examinations in Yugoslavia. And this is like uh, dramatized quite um, and, and sort of, well, it's not dramatized, it's actually documented um, by a filmmaker Krzysztof Papic in his documentary, uh, Special Trains, uh, where he shows these German uh, doctors examining these workers in Yugoslavia, uh, in German. It's quite, uh, it's quite stunning, in fact, especially coming, you know, not such a long time after the Second World War and, and very sort of um, violent uh, history between Germany and Yugoslavia. So there were these official channels. Um, Still, more than half of migrants chose to pursue employment illegally by leaving on a tourist visa uh, and often working on the black market because they didn't uh, find a channel to get a residence uh, and work permit. Um, So that's important to note as well, that it isn't the entire story. Uh, in terms of Yugoslavia and host states, other kinds of collaboration also took place in particular in the field of education. States that relied on temporary labor migration were, with the exception of Sweden, eager for migrants to return home eventually with their families. And so they collaborated um, with Yugoslavia in setting up um, formal mother tongue education programs so that to make it easier for these families. Uh, and their children to return. And so why is Sweden accepted from that category? Sweden had an assimilationist policy, um, quite an outlier in the sort of post-war European landscape. Um, And um, I think we'll talk a little bit more about education later, but the interesting thing about Sweden is uh, it did support mother tongue education, but not because it would allow children to return, but because Um, The I guess the philosophy was that mastering your own mother tongue was essential to learning another language, namely Swedish. So that's really interesting. Yeah, kind of an
1: integrationist uh, approach, but also one that allowed one to assume these multiple identities and that wouldn't have kind of contradicted the overarching national identity. But yeah, we'll return to that. I'd like to ask you a bit about... The typical Gastarbeiter, if there was one, so if we're going to look at kind of what the typical Gastarbeiter looked like, what region they're coming from, what their socioeconomic background was, what their ethno-national background was, could you tell us a little bit about
0: that? Yeah, certainly. So the typical uh, Gastarbeiter, to use uh, the colloquial term, was male, young, so under the age of 35. Um Ethnically Croatian, either from Croatia or from uh, Herzegovina, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, they uh, tended to have a low level of education. And uh, they were generally unskilled or semi-skilled, and tended to work either in construction or in heavy industry. And uh, the majority ended up in West Germany. Um, in fact, migration was a lot more diverse than that. Uh, in particular, by the 1970s, women made up a third of workers living abroad. Unfortunately, we know little about them. Um, they didn't fit the official profile, so they didn't attract a lot of attention from the state, from social scientists, from journalists, or from filmmakers. And interestingly, they also tended not to answer surveys. Um, the reasons for that are complicated. Um, certainly in cases where uh, these women were part of a household that was living abroad, the, 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 the men of the household tended to answer the survey. So there's some interesting sort of patriarchal attitudes there, or I mean, it's worth digging into more. I don't have any answers though. Um, they did leave traces. However, in the letters that they wrote to the popular radio program, um, to our citizens of the world. So we at least get to hear their voices, if only fleetingly. Um, I really think this is something that should attract more scholarship. The profile of the labor migrant also changed over time. So while Croatia and Croatians remained well-represented, an increasing proportion of migrants came from Serbia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Serbian labor migrants, in fact, surpassed those from Croatia in numbers in the 1981 census, and while unskilled and semi-skilled migrants dominated, a significant number of migrants were educated and skilled. So yeah, all this just to say that that it's actually, you know, that there is a kind of a a profile, but there is also a lot of diversity that often gets um, kind of painted over.
1: Yeah, so I really, I find it fascinating that your book brings out that dimension of, of the diversity among these migrant laborers that you have, those migrating also who are working in professional jobs. And I was actually curious, with respect to women's positions, the types of jobs they took up. So do you see them taking up their traditionally gendered jobs in, in Germany and Western Europe, like as domestics, or are they also um, entering into professions?
0: Uh, So that's an interesting question. And like I said, we don't have a lot of data on them because uh, for the reasons that I stated, I can say anecdotally, it seems that a lot of them ended up working um, in in sort of domestic kinds of situations um, as house cleaners, particularly in situations where they were accompanying their husband um, but I also um, had a number of really interesting conversations with a woman who was trained as a massage therapist or a physiotherapist um, who went to work abroad to work in that field. So, um, yeah, I, I would be really interested uh, to learn more about what kind of labor women were engaged in, to what extent they went through official channels, to what extent they were sort of simply uh, driven by a desire to accompany their husband and then sought work when they arrived there, I think it would be a fascinating story. And I'd love to learn more about that. There's the call out for all our
1: PhD students who are looking for a topic, right? And want to focus on <laughs> Yugoslavia and transnational history. Exactly. So could you tell us a bit about how many um, individuals left Yugoslavia and You mentioned this really started during the 60s. And then talk a little bit about how long they stayed. I know that obviously varied from family to family, but just kind of a general sense of how many individuals are leaving the country and and then returning.
0: Right. Um, Well, So first, I want to preface this by saying that in my book, I deal with the challenges of counting migrants, in particular, in relation to the 1971 census, um, which is the most sort of in-depth effort to capture how many people were living abroad. Uh, And that census counted 672,000 migrants in Western Europe. But records from the receiving states counted um, roughly um, 120,000 more, right? And then there are those who didn't have work permits who were likely not counted in either case. So um you know it's it's in some ways difficult to know. The other thing of course is the 1971 census captures a moment in time and the fact is that you know migrants left and came back often after 3 4 years, 5 years. Um and then sometimes left again. And so y- you sort of miss out on you know it, it's it's a representative snapshot of a of a moment in time rather than you know what percentage of the population actually undertook that kind of um experience and the question of how long they stayed is complicated because they didn't really fit that expectation that they would leave and then return once and for all so many of them left for several separate stints some of them in fact would return uh, seasonally to work on their um on their land um, again, issues with like, how do you categorize that? Uh, do you count those as separate stints or as a, as a single long stay that's punctuated by absences? And some to this day still maintain a residence in their um, their home republic or today their home state and abroad, where in many cases, you know, their children, that's what their children call home. So they, they kind of have a bifocal life. And of course, the wars of the 1990s confused things even more. Uh, migrants ended up across Western Europe, but they were particularly numerous in the Federal Republic of Germany, in Austria, in Switzerland, Sweden, and France. M- migrants from different parts of Yugoslavia tended to end up in different places, so Croats were, more, were most likely to end up uh, in West Germany whereas Serbs tended to go to Austria, France, and Sweden, for instance.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. So you don't have situations in which you have different ethno-national groups in the same country or city, I guess I should say, necessarily, right?
0: Well, there there would always be a diversity of, uh, of national groups represented in any particular location, but there there was definitely... Um, You know, there were certain kinds of um, pathways that were more common. So um, there were certainly Serbs in West Germany. But uh, I think this has to do with chain migration, which is actually the way in which most migration took place, not through these official recruiting mechanisms. But people would go um, to where their relatives or friends or um, townspeople had ended up. Uh, And so you get sort of, you know, concentrations of people from the same place who have some kind of connection with one another in, in different places.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, we see this in the U.S. Like you have Scandinavians in Minnesota, you have Germans in parts of Wisconsin, like families join other family members. And so you have this, then you have the networks being set up. So I'd like to actually ask a pretty broad question, but it's one of the major themes throughout the book. How does labor migration go from being an opportunity, So, and I'm thinking here an opportunity in part for the Yugoslav state, to becoming a problem?
0: Well, in a sense, it was always simultaneously an opportunity and a problem. So from from the start, um, there was a preoccupation, particularly within the party, within the League of Communists, as to the wisdom of sending workers abroad to live and breathe capitalism and then bring them back again. Um, So it was always fraught, but something happens in the second half of the 1960s. Uh, You get the perception of a crisis that really crystallizes in 1967, 1968. Uh, Some of that has to do with diplomats beginning to send back alarming reports of migrants becoming alienated from the homeland. And in some accounts that takes the form of being isolated and lost in a hostile environment, sort of not not able to cope. And in other accounts, it has to do with acclimating only too well and in fact forming ties much more closely with the host state. And I think it's also important that this converges with other crises. There's the 1968 uh, Prague Spring and Tito's famous um, fear that three armies worth of people were missing from Yugoslav soil. There's um, the Croatian Spring uh, and well, in general, the Croatian uh, National Revival, which takes off in the late 1960s, uh, which seizes on labor migration as a problem that needs to be solved. Um, That sees it as a symptom of Croatia's failed modernization um, and that sees it as ongoing exploitation by the Federation, uh, more specifically the sort of the taxation of worker remittances, which allowed the Federation to capture foreign currency. And in tandem with that, the argument that the profits of labor migration should be used to build the economies of the underdeveloped regions from where the migrants came. And eventually you get another crisis layering itself on this, and that was the economic contraction across Europe and globally that followed the 1973 oil crisis, which greatly diminished access to work abroad, and suddenly Yugoslavia has to figure out how to bring back these workers because, of course, the story it had always told is is that the whole purpose of allowing these workers um, to go work abroad was to give the Yugoslav economy time to expand and modernize and that they would eventually be able to reintegrate. So all of these different crises um, really bring things to a head.
1: I'd like to move on to chapter three now, which examines film. So could you tell us about how migrant laborers are depicted in film, both in feature films, but also documentary films?
0: Yeah, this kind of connects to the previous question in the sense that um, the films that I look at really start being put out in the late 1960s in this moment where, you know, labor migration becomes, uh, becomes a preoccupation as a problem in Yugoslav society. And yeah, there's a there's there's quite a substantial uh, production of films in which they play an important role, both uh, documentary and fictional, both short films and longer feature length films. And migrants are rarely portrayed as happy, successful agents of their own destiny. Barely it, it, you see this in a few <laughs> a few very marginal films. Uh, most of the time, they're portrayed uh, either as Fools, or evildoers, or madmen, or they're portrayed as victims. The first type of representation—the fools, evildoers, or madmen—that signaled, I think, a deep discomfort with labor migrants um, as somehow outside the normal. They were either something to be laughed at, uh, and therefore their you know whatever their successes in in amassing personal wealth you know, was, was something that should not be sort of rewarded with respect or they were something to be feared. And arguably this had to do with their exposure to the outside world, um, their exposure to the corruption of the capitalist world, the perception that they embraced values that were not socialist, um, like a desire to accumulate large, large amounts of wealth and to flaunt that wealth. And portraying them in this way neutralized this threat. Um, And we should keep in mind at the same time that nearly everyone knew a labor migrant. And, you know, they were alluring and mysterious figures. And um, they were often convincing their peers to embark on the same adventure. Um, and at the same time, they were they were quite familiar. So they were mysterious, but they were ubiquitous. And so at this, you know, while we have these representations um, of them as outside the normal, they were also, they were very normal. <laughs> so there, there is this kind of paradox there. Uh, the, the other films, both documentary and fictional, um, that portrayed them as victims, uh, provided far more empathetic portrayals, and they were they were you know victims in two ways. They could be victims of their own illusions, and I'm thinking in particular of the film "Don't Don't le- Lean Out the Window," um, which is a film about a young man who um, who in fact is uh, is seduced in a sense by his uh, um, his I guess his distant relative who comes uh, who comes home to his village in, uh, in Herzegovina somewhere and flaunts his fancy suit and his fancy car and his electronic watch. And so this young man goes, uh, to Germany to seek his fortune and comes to realize that it's, it's, it's all a mirage, right? And that there's only suffering and alienation are the only two things that he can possibly get. And eventually, uh, through a series of tragic events, uh, returns home to bury his countryman, the successful labor migrant, who, who turns out got wrapped up into criminal business. Um, and, and so there is, there's kind of a coming of age story, a chastening story, right? So he's a victim of his illusions who learns the, the cruel truth. But then there were other films that were, you know, about migrants who were victims of the failed promise of Yugoslav modernization. Um, and I can think of a number of films here there's Vuk Babic's film, The Burden, for example. Um, there's Jivoyin Pavlakovich's Flight of the Dead Birds. There's um, Aller-Retour. Um, the first two films really kind of dwell on life in the countryside and what happens when labor migrants come and how they confront people with the stagnation of the countryside and the impossibility of, of making a life there. And the labor migrants are these people who come, and um, and they they bring nothing good. They bring corruption. They bring um, they they bring despair with them. Um, and Aller Retour is a little bit more in the spirit of uh, don't lean out the window, in the sense that it's a film about a migrant who tries to make it in Western Europe, um, but ultimately is you know, is 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 a failure, and largely it's due to his exploitation at the hands of other Yugoslavs. And so there's really a sense that the story of, you know, the story of these labor migrants is, is about um, the state, the Yugoslav state sort of not taking responsibility for modernizing the countryside and allow, you know, allowing and encouraging them to work abroad where they're exploited. Um, and I can think of a number of other films that spin this failed promise of Yugoslav modernization in different ways, but um, maybe that's, that's a good, you know, set of examples to begin with.
1: No, that's great. And actually, as you were discussing these films, I was wondering to what degree they shaped popular understandings of migrants for those Yugoslavs who chose to stay. So, you know, they viewed these films and then they think, well, in the end... Perhaps it's best we didn't migrate. Perhaps it's best we stayed in the home country because otherwise we would have become these consumer oriented and vain individuals who return to flaunt their wealth, uh, or we would have been exploited uh, as laborers uh, in Western Europe. So, better just to stay uh, in Yugoslavia. And you note that the Yugoslav state subsidized these films, and so obviously. Uh, they see that they can play an important kind of educational right what we would call propagandistic role. So could you discuss this a little bit?
0: I mean it's a really interesting question um, in terms of uh, to what extent you know what what is the status of these films are they are they promoting an official perspective on this certainly some of the films like special trains um, which is a which is actually a great example of a film that, really criticizes Yugoslavia quite explicitly in terms of the ways in which it collaborates with Germany to exploit uh, Yugoslav labor. Um, Some of them them actually are very critical of the Yugoslav state, and you could not possibly see them as propaganda. But I I think you're you're right that in some ways, um, you know, more broadly speaking, not in terms of official policy, um, there, there is there's sort of a deep discomfort within Yugoslav society about this this you know this this thing that they've started <laughs> of of allowing uh, citizens to go and live and work abroad. And what does that tell? What does that tell us about the Yugoslav project and and the challenges that it faces? Um, and uh, and that it was convenient um, at very least. To the state to try to try and not encourage people too much um, to to choose you know to to opt for this solution to their problems that that they you know there had there was a careful balance whereby certainly they wanted to capture remittances and they wanted to allow people to go work abroad but they they also felt very uncomfortable with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, because it, it undermines the, the whole the promise of socialism, right, of improving one's life. You know, you shouldn't have to go abroad to, to um, enhance your economic standing and situation. I'd like to talk now about the role of radio in connecting migrants uh, with the home country. So can you tell us a bit about uh, the programming in particular? Uh, you focus on the program To Our Citizens in the World.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the book is really focused um, after it sort of deals with the, the ways in which migration and migrants were framed and understood. Um, I focus a lot on looking at different cultural programs that were aimed at building and maintaining relationships with migrants. One of the earliest efforts uh, to do this was, uh, was radio programming. Unlike newspapers, which uh, we can talk about in a bit, uh, radio didn't depend on infrastructure outside of Yugoslavia's borders. So for example, newspapers need to be printed and, and distributed and sold, et cetera. Um, but radio is just something that would be broadcast from Yugoslavia and travel through the ether into people's homes. And it was accessible to people with limited literacy, which was also important. Tour Citizens in the World was a pioneering program. Um, It was a a weekly program hosted by uh, Radio Televisia Zagreb. Um, The host was uh, Tsino Handel um, and its purpose was to connect migrants to Yugoslavia. The format was primarily music um, combined with greetings, so people could write in uh, and send their greetings either to their family um, back in Yugoslavia or Yugoslavs in Yugoslavia could send greetings to their, to their loved ones abroad. And there, was, there were also segments in which um, uh, advice was given to migrants, um, questions that migrants sent in were answered. Um, although it was run by Radio Televisia Zagreb, it explicitly uh, uh, rejected any kind of ethnic framing or national framing, um, which it saw, saw that as being kind of retrograde. They wanted to be modern and socialist and not socialist in some kind of propagandistic sense, but in the sense of celebrating, you know, the values of modern of a modern Yugoslavia. Um, and although it was very much an instrument of the government, right? It was broadcast by radio, television, Zagreb. It's it really sought to portray itself as the people's radio, um, as speaking to the people and for the people. Uh, and it became immensely popular. It had a it had a huge following. Within seven months, it received its ten thousandth letter from from people writing in Um, and it really, like I said, the focus was on building connection. Um, And so those connections could be built in different ways, Um, connection through families. So greetings that were being sent to each other Um, connection by bringing together Yugoslavs together to listen to the program. So you get, you know, people writing in saying, Oh yes, my friends and I always gather around the radio and listen to this program when it plays. Uh, connection in other ways. so for example, when there was um, a, a major flood in Zagreb, um, the mayor of Zagreb went on the air on this program and solicited donations um, and people sent in um, sent in funds um, to help you know with the humanitarian efforts. Um, people wrote into the radio station uh, saying I've lost contact with my parents I need to know if they're okay um, so it was it was really you know, People's lifeline to Zagreb during that difficult time, and in fact, people were more likely to contact the radio program with questions about their personal lives. So, like questions about passports expiring or customs, or oh, I've uh, my I've left my German girlfriend, and do I have to pay her child support? Um, the location of a loved one that had gone missing. They're more likely to contact the radio program than they were to get in touch with. The consulate, the local consulate, um, and I mean, in terms of archives, uh, what's really valuable is that um, this radio program elicited letters that really spoke to the um, emotional or affective dimension of the migration experience. People uh, wrote to to the um, to Tsino Handel. Um, I mean just to express their appreciation for the program and to describe what it was like to to listen to it and how they felt connected to the homeland and, and what, what kind of bodily experience this was. People describe chills and, and dancing and their heart racing and all kinds of, you know, really interesting um, descriptions of personal experience that other sources don't really tell us about.
1: Yeah, I was really struck by the letters that people wrote into the radio. So some of the issues they brought up, which were personal, even intimate. And uh, on this topic of engaging with uh, media produced for the migrants, I'd like to now move on to newspapers. So could you tell us what types of newspapers were produced for these migrants and then also discuss how the migrants engaged with them?
0: Um, well, similar to sim- the newspapers were similar to radio in some sense in, in, in the sense that it was about connecting people to Yugoslavia, uh, but newspapers lent themselves better to uh, different kinds of information. So you could convey more complex or technical information more effectively. and they were less ephemeral. So a single issue would be circulated many times and read by many different people. Um, so, a, a, you know, one newspaper goes a long way. There were many different newspapers. <clears throat> the best known is the weekly Viesnik Usriedu uh, or VUS. In my book, um, I focus more on another newspaper, a little known newspaper called Imotska Krajina. Um, and Imotska Krajina provided the largest number per capita of labor migrants in all of Yugoslavia. this newspaper was published by the local chapter of the Socialist Alliance of Working People of Yugoslavia, which is this uh, mass organization, uh, so organization aimed at mobilizing the population. And the purpose of this newspaper was similar to the radio program and to Vesniku Sreedu. It was about connecting migrants to their homeland, but here homeland was framed differently. It was framed in a really local way. Um, it was about connecting people to local landscapes, to traditions and rituals, um, to dialects. There were a lot of local news stories about you know, the, the electrification of a village or the road being built somewhere. There were sketches of town life. Uh, and of course they published letters from workers. And this newspaper is really interesting because it allows us to think about how Homeland was constructed differently by different cultural programs. So, for example, we talked about uh, To Our Citizens of the World, the radio program with its vague Yugoslav identity focused on popular culture, which allowed everyone to come together and enjoy this program. In fact, a lot of the letters to the radio show were, were from people who weren't from Croatia. Um, and then you have Imotska Krajina," where the homeland is associated to a very specific and local place. Um, And during the Croatian spring, another dimension of homeland became explicit uh, in this newspaper. The struggles of labor migrants who were forced to abandon their families and their villages was tied into a broader narrative about the exploitation of the Croatian nation. So it went from being local to a national story. So there was some flexibility there as well.
1: Um, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the letters individuals wrote to the newspapers.
0: So there were people who wrote about their their personal experience um, of having to to leave, um, and and the sort of the sadness and bitterness that it left them with. Um, some of these letters, particularly during the Croatian Spring, became quite political, um, echoing discourse that was going around not so much the discourse that was being promoted by the the reformist croatian communists but more you know less official versions that were being promoted by um, the croatian nationalist cultural organization Matica hrvatska um, that really kind of spoke to you know a frustration about the exploitation of of croats by by Yugoslavia, so really framing things in a kind of an ethno-nationalist way. Um, so these, you know, there's there's some of these letters that sort of um, tell stories that you would expect um, about, um, yeah, about the, the frustration of, of labor migrants with the, the choices they were being forced to make. And then, of course, there were other kinds of letters that were much more sort of um, practical that had to do with uh, Particularly, this is less in Imoska Kraina and more in other newspapers that were about, for example, uh, people writing in with questions about um, health problems that they were having, because I guess uh, wherever they were located, they either didn't speak the language well enough or perhaps weren't really um, you know well integrated into the health system and didn't didn't know how to deal with particular health problems. And so for them the newspaper was an opportunity to ask questions. and there was, um, there was a, a column in Yessniikuoustiedu uh, where you could ask health questions. Um, and uh, there were also letters uh, to the editor commenting on particular aspects of the newspaper and in particular, expressing um, gratitude for the existence of the newspaper um, and and a sense that really this was um, a way to, you know, to keep a sense of connection to the homeland. Um, And of course, the problem with the letters to the editor is you never know to what extent they were representative. Um, There was very definitely an eye kept on these uh, newspapers uh, and therefore, you know, expression, Particularly, um, particularly at times. Uh, well, so during the Croatian Spring, um, I would say newspapers were more prone to allowing dissenting voices to be published and to highlight them because there seemed to be an. Uh, uh, they see, there seemed to be an opportunity for expressing dissent uh, and and accomplishing some kind of political change. Um, at, uh, but at other times, you can definitely see that certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of letters were welcome and uh, and printed, and others were likely not printed. And in fact, you see, for example, Imotska Krajina after the Croatian Spring, the tone of the newspaper changes completely. It stopped publishing for roughly a year, and when it came back, um, it published a story about how it had had financial difficulties. But the tone of the newspaper had changed completely um, and was no longer critical of Yugoslavia. Um, And certainly, you know, published stories that dealt with the hardships of labor migration, but there was always an optimistic uh, tone to it. And also, a, you know, if if there were problems, they were never a failure of Yugoslav policy. And certainly there is no ethno-national coloring to it. And it's really hard to believe that after the Croatian spring was over, no one was writing in angry letters anymore because, um, you know, there was a lot of resentment about how how that particular reformist movement was dealt with within Croatia.
1: So then looking at the newspapers not only reveals what the concerns of these migrants were, but also is reflective of the political situation in Yugoslavia and uh, clearly the reining in of this particular newspaper at that time as a result of the Croatian Spring. I find that really fascinating as well. And as you say, of course, in general, like in all one-party states, you know, these these publications where there's censorship, these publications are, are curated, right? The, the letters to the editor are, are, are censored or curated to suit the needs and they have to be cautious. In, in terms of what they they publish, so um, again, kind of going back to our discussion earlier about you know how you have to take into consideration certain things when and when looking at these these sources.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And conversely, I think that during the Croatian Spring, the you know the editors of newspapers like um, Imotska Krajina privileged the uh, the angry letters because uh, again, it was about you know giving giving you know sort of giving lending credence to the editorial position of the newspaper. So I think I think it's true, you know, both after um, after that moment for dissent was over and also while it was while it was taking place, um, the editor. I mean, this is the thing about letters to the editor is that ultimately the editor gets to decide what is going to uh, what is going to be printed,
1: right? I'd like to move on to your discussion of uh, the Yugoslav workers' associations. It seems like they have this kind of ambiguous meaning and function. So can you talk a little bit about these associations?
0: Uh, Yeah. So the idea of creating Yugoslav workers' associations um, sort of emerged out of a desire to counteract the perceived isolation of Yugoslav workers and create um, a series of, or a kind of a network that would allow for the dissemination of other kinds of programming intended to maintain ties with workers abroad. And it was also uh, intended to counteract other organizations like Caritas, which provided uh, services to labor migrants and either were anti-Yugoslav or were perceived to be anti-Yugoslav. It also helped to deal with one of the paradoxes of Yugoslavia's migration policy, which, which was that it sent workers to be exploited by capitalist enterprises. And it did that by providing an opportunity for workers to self-organize. So clubs were in that sense, also instances of self-management opportunities for for workers to to self-manage. On the one hand, um, therefore, clubs were an instrument for carrying out state policy and on the other hand, they were dependent on the volunteering and enthusiasm of, uh, of workers. And the location of the clubs outside Yugoslavia also made it really difficult for authorities to police the activities of members. Uh, and some clubs, in fact, were, had, had sort of the grassroots efforts and had organized themselves autonomously. And the authorities had to bring them under its supervision and try to get them to comply with some basic guidelines like the fact that there shouldn't be any ethnically based clubs. Um, unfortunately, information on individual clubs is scant, as they did not—they uh, were not required to deposit archives officially with any institution, and so we get glimpses of them through documentation um, that they mailed in, for whatever reason, and uh, reports by various organizations who were interested in their activities. Um, By 1975, there were over 200 of these associations across Europe. Um, They varied hugely in size and resilience. Um, Obviously, they tended to be located in cities with large concentrations of migrants. They usually had different sections, including folklore uh, and sports teams uh, or sports associations. Uh, And the cover of my book actually features membership cards from the Vojvodina football club in Austria. Uh, They also often had libraries where workers could read the Yugoslav press. Um, They organized social dances. And they were called on for logistical assistance when Yugoslavia sent performing troops on tour. And they also provided support to pioneer organizations. And they celebrated Yugoslav national holidays. So they did all kinds of stuff. The Zurich Club uh, in Switzerland, for example, had eighteen different sections. It was a bit anomalous. It was one of the largest clubs, and you know, so it uh, shouldn't be taken to be representative. But it had it had eighteen sections, uh, including three folkloric dance ensembles, five chess teams, and five uh, football teams. It also organized German courses and driving exams in uh, in what we call today BCS, and back then it was called serbo croatian They provided translation services. They helped members open bank accounts in Yugoslavia. um, They provided access to adult education. They did all kinds of things. There were a lot of other clubs that were much more um, small and intermittent. Sometimes some clubs uh, occasionally didn't even have a fixed site or had difficulty securing a permanent home. While at best 10 to 15% of migrants belonged to these clubs, um, much larger numbers attended the functions that they organized. For example, although the Zurich Club only had somewhere between one to 2,000 members, membership fluctuated, it organized 50 evening events in 1972, which attracted an estimated 15,000 attendees out of a local Yugoslav population of roughly 30,000 so in contrast to some other people who have looked at these clubs i argue that they played an important role in mediating that relationship between yugoslavia and its workers abroad
1: yeah and it also sounds like they played a really important role in fostering communities so even if you had a small percentage that uh, of, of migrants that were actually members, uh, as you noted, many attended their events, right, and which were really varied, so it was quite uh, impressive uh, the range of activities that these associations uh, organized. Okay, I'd like to move on to the surveys now because I found them particularly intriguing, um, including the methodology uh, used by the researchers. So, What do we learn about the lives of migrants from these surveys uh, that were conducted by the Zagreb-based Institute
0: for Migration and Nationality? Well, I discussed two surveys in my book. One that was carried out in 1966 to get a better understanding um, of the everyday life and opinions of migrants. And another one um, from 1970, 71 that looked at conditions uh, for return. The 1966 one is quite rich in detail about um, the the everyday life of migrants. Um, the survey was conducted um, through various um, routes. Uh, they sent out some researchers to, uh, to cities abroad <laughs> to basically find migrants where they live and conduct interviews with them in that way. They also uh, solicited um, written responses through... Um, through the radio program and through the newspaper. uh, So uh, that I mentioned earlier, Vyaznik Usriedu. And they also interviewed people in Yugoslavia who were thinking of leaving. So it was a very ambitious survey. In terms of the migrants who were living abroad, um, we learn about their motivations. More than half were motivated by a desire to increase their earnings. And uh, nearly half wish to acquire a home or apartment with these earnings so that that story I started out with about people building homes in informal settlements, is, you know, there's a connection there. Um, we also see that uh, that they were dependent on traditional migration channels more than on the Yugoslav state, uh, more than 60 percent, for example, found work through friends, acquaintances and relatives and over half depended on the same to get adjusted once they arrived. Um, The survey also speaks to their frugal lifestyle and social isolation. Most workers lived alone or with one or more friends. 42% stayed in accommodation provided by their employers, typically barracks, rooming houses, or bachelor's rooms. Um, 65% found separation from their families to be the biggest disadvantage of living abroad and another 48% um, spoke of loneliness as the biggest disadvantage. And the survey also revealed that the longer the migrants uh, stayed abroad, the more likely they were to, first of all, read publications from hostile political émigrés. Uh, And also, the less likely they were to return home for a less well-paying job. So their attachment to Yugoslavia became more vulnerable. And and these findings contributed to the fear that migrants were becoming alienated from Yugoslavia. Um, I also comment for this survey on the ways in which data was collected, which I thought was really interesting because we have reports from some of these researchers who went abroad um, to interview migrants. And it's interesting to see how they excluded some of their respondents on the basis that they were politically hostile and therefore didn't belong in the category of, uh, of labor migrants, but they, they must belong to the category of political emigres. And so this is a really telling example of how the, ca- the ways in which these categories were formed shaped um, the ways in which data was collected um, and ultimately also shaped the ways in which Migrants chose to speak to the state. The other survey um, from 1970s, 1971 on conditions of return was uh, different. The first survey that I talked about, a lot of it was multiple choice. In fact, most of it was, uh, you had a very limited set of potential answers. The 1970 71 uh, survey was open ended. Uh, And of course, it took place in the context, uh, you know, at the height of, in fact, the Croatian National Revival. And what's interesting about this survey is the way in which migrants subverted the last question, the open-ended one, on what what would be necessary to procure the return. They subverted it uh, to tell their own story in their own way. Um, Not all, but some respondents sent in letters that were several pages long describing their life stories. And you might wonder why they would do this, given that they were, most of these letters were quite frustrated with Yugoslavia. So why bother? But uh, again, let's remember that these were solicited through um, the radio program and the newspaper, similar to the first survey. And so they felt like they were talking to an advocate. Um, And so it was worth Uh, it was worth sharing these grievances. Um, And in these stories, you can see how some migrants internalized discourse about the victimization of Croatia. You see a kind of, you see some tropes coming up that you can see in other places. Uh, But you also see how they interpreted it through the lens of their lives. And you also get, and I think this is important, uh, a powerful sense of their agency. They're not just victims. They're individuals who have taken their lives into their own hands. And they've made choices to meet personal or household goals. Uh, And several respondents even sent in prescriptions for addressing what they saw as Yugoslavia's shortcomings based on their own experience of living and working abroad, observations about how effective workplaces work, particularly management, observations about economic policy. And there is definitely a bitterness to some of these letters, but not in a sense of defeat, more defiance. And this is how they differ from many of the film depictions of migrants as victims. So in
1: a sense, the survey is kind of a response to them. It's like in conversation, but challenging some of those depictions. And um, I had one more question about the survey. So they weren't accessible to the general public, right?
0: Are you talking about results? Yeah. Yeah. The results of the survey. Yeah, so that is a very interesting thing. Is that, of course, this data was uh, was collected at a politically very sensitive time, and uh, in the archival record, all that's left um, beyond the individual responses are portions of a final report. Not even the entire final report. Um, that that you know try you know that obviously the survey responses have been coded and aggregated. Um, and they, they sort of discuss the different themes that come up, and they do, in fact, talk about, um, you know, some of the ethno-nationalism that is expressed in these letters. Um, and they try and sort of um, discuss it in a way that would somehow be acceptable. But ultimately, the report was never published, I, I the, to my knowledge, at least. And so it feels like... Um, that it was essentially just kind of uh, swept uh, under the carpet uh, because the things that the migrants had to say were no longer welcome by the time the study was complete.
1: Yeah, and it was mainly for the state to acquire knowledge about these individuals.
0: Right, and ultimately, I don't know to what extent um, official state institutions really were aware of the findings, um, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting question, and I don't, I don't have an answer to it.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating. The surveys were really interesting to read about, and just like you said, the the research process, the, the flawed methodology, etc. Okay, so I'd like to move on to the final section of your book, which examines migrant education, and you already talked a little bit about how that played out in Sweden. But in chapters eight and nine, uh, you look at how this sure. second generation, you know, that's The children of migrants are growing up and and how they're reared. And so could you talk a little bit about the different countries' uh, approaches to educating the children of migrants?
0: Yeah, and uh, it's important to note that this was a collaboration between Yugoslavia and the various host states. And uh, in order for that to be possible, Yugoslavia had to innovate a really remarkably flexible approach to delivering mother tongue um, education across a variety of contexts. Uh, As I noted earlier, both Yugoslavia and host countries generally had an interest in providing mother tongue uh, integration or education to Yugoslav children because they aimed to send them home with their parents uh, in short order. And Sweden, um, as as I mentioned, was was also paradoxically in support of mother tongue education, although for, for different reasons. Yugoslavia strove to keep control of the delivery of education by sending its own teachers abroad and using its own curriculum. Um, simultaneously, it tried to get financial support from host states, because it was a really costly enterprise. So it was a, it was a balancing act because uh, you know, the more they, they had to depend on other states for financing and the more control they had to give up. In some cases, like in many German states, because uh, uh, education is a, is a prerogative of the individual German states, They were able to participate actively in the delivery of education at the partial expense of the host state and within the existing educational system. So it would be during the school week Uh, in others, like in France and in Switzerland, um, two states that were essentially uninterested, they had to operate outside of official channels um, at their at their own expense. And then Sweden and Austria are interesting cases. Sweden, because it wanted to use its own educators, because you know, as I said before, the purpose was to assimilate them into Sweden. And so ultimately they wanted Swedish teachers to deliver this education. And Austria, because it was fiercely suspicious of communist propaganda and infiltration and wanted oversight over the curriculum. Um, and in the case of Sweden, Yugoslavia responded by offering study tours uh, in Yugoslavia to Swedish-trained teachers in the hope that they might incorporate some of what they learned.
1: Great. So as a follow-up, could you talk about some of the efforts that were used by the Yugoslav state to bind migrants' children uh, closer to the homeland?
0: Sure. And the central problem, of course, was that Unlike the other programs, this wasn't about maintaining ties, but about creating them. So many children had been born abroad and they didn't speak the language and they had no real knowledge of this, you know, homeland, if you want, (laughs) that was being attached to them. So mother tongue education was the central policy for this purpose. And aside from language skills, the educational program sought to impart a knowledge about Yugoslavia's history, in particular, Uh, through the lens of brotherhood and unity and the life of Tito and uh, knowledge about Yugoslavia's geography, its uh, different cultures, and for older children, basic concepts um, of self-management. And uh, while we don't really have much in the way of curriculum materials left to analyze. We do have a beautiful textbook a series of three textbooks that was put out in the early eighties called Moja Domovina Suferia, My Homeland, the Socialist Federative Republic of Yugoslavia, which was the product of a collaboration between the different republics. Um, This is in the early eighties. So that in itself is kind of interesting. Uh, It was, Uh, It it really attempted to represent Yugoslavia's different cultures rather than somehow mix everything up together. The notion was that children should identify first with their home republic, and then based on this idea of brotherhood and unity, in other words, that um, that that Yugoslavia was made up of different nations, but that they were united together, um, that they would also identify with the Yugoslav project. And there's some really interesting notions of homeland deployed in here. In particular, the idea of homeland rooted in the everyday experience. Um, Homeland rooted in kinship, rooted in local landscapes that were sort of mediated through art, and poetry, and also homeland rooted in a shared history and in shared values. Um, So, you know, that gives us a sense of what children were learning in in their, the classroom. The other vehicle for binding migrant children to Yugoslavia were pioneer clubs. Um, and pioneer clubs abroad were identical in scope to pioneers in Yugoslavia, except that in many places, in fact, most places, um, they were not allowed to operate within the school system. I mean, ultimately, pioneer groups were, you know, communist, so didn't really fit in Cold War Western Europe. They wore the same uniform. They swore the same oath. They uh, took part in different um, kinds of activities, um, such as organizing national holiday celebrations. Um, in fact, um, most of their activities reflected the conviction that the best way for children to feel connected to Yugoslavia was that was for them to experience Yugoslavia. So. They were involved in pen pal programs with uh, Yugoslav children. Um, They visited traveling exhibits. They participated in quizzes organized in Yugoslavia. They uh, took part in uh, exchange trips occasionally. There's a particularly ambitious one called One Youth, One Homeland, which is initiated by um, the Association of Yugoslav Citizens Clubs in Frankfurt in Germany which included 700 children in 1980. It was about a week long and children were hosted by 23 schools across Yugoslavia. So Zagreb, Split, Ljubljana, Pristina, Sarajevo and Belgrade. And in most places they stayed with the families of school children. So you have to imagine that somehow 700 families were mobilized into hosting these children. And in fact, um, you know, the the story is that many of these parents uh, scheduled their vacation to coincide with, the, with these visiting school children. So it was quite an effort. And they visited monuments, workplaces, youth centers, they attended performances, and most importantly, they socialized with their peers in Yugoslavia. And the report published on the trip or uh, written on the trip stated that uh, they believed that the children had felt the breath of the homeland.
1: Yeah, it sounds like the, the typical socialist ease uh, one would have heard at the time. Okay, uh, as a final question about your book, could you tell our listeners what this story uh, illuminates about relations between East and West during the Cold War?
0: Yeah, I mean, although Yugoslavia was a socialist state, it was also in some ways an outlier in the Cold War. Cold War and nowhere is this more obvious than with migration policy. So I'm not sure how far we can generalize from the Yugoslav case to the rest of Eastern Europe, but what this case shows is that not only was there a tremendous amount of exchange and collaboration between Yugoslavia and Western Europe um, in this period, but there was also a remarkable scope for Yugoslavia to continue to engage with its citizens. In spite of the chilly climate of the Cold War, uh, host states extended different degrees of welcome and cooperation, but even in the absence of that, Yugoslavia found ways to continue um, engaging with its citizens deep into Western Europe. And so, as a
1: follow up to that, maybe you could comment on some of the contemporary legacies uh, of this story. What do we see well,
0: lingering today? Yeah. Yeah, in many ways, I would say this is a story that hasn't ended. Um, There was just a really dramatic and unforeseen plot twist. Some of the episodes I relate in my book, such as the anxieties over, um, you know, the the second generation, to what extent they really saw themselves as Yugoslavs, and the substantial activities of the Yugoslav Citizens Clubs uh, to commemorate Tito's death. Uh, including the day of youth celebrations, which gathered 6,500 citizens at the Neckar Stadium in Stuttgart. Um, These things took place, you know, a decade or less before Yugoslavia was torn asunder. But the migrants didn't disappear. Uh, Some returned to their homeland to participate in the fighting. Some welcomed family members who were refugees and helped them to get set up just as they had previously received help. Um, Others bunkered down in their host countries until things calmed down and then resumed their commuting between two states. And there's surely another story to tell about how the Yugoslav successor states continued in their efforts to maintain ties to their citizens living abroad. Uh, Some scholars have looked at aspects of that story and I'm thinking in particular of Jenny Winterhagen and uh, Francesco Ragazzi who have written on the Croatian, in the case of Croatia. Um, and hopefully other scholars will take an interest in this ongoing saga, uh, particularly um, with a focus on other successor states, which have received a lot less attention.
1: Yeah, so you're saying outside of Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia-Herzegovina.
0: I mean, there were, you know, in fact, I know someone who is working on Albanian, ethnic Albanian uh, migrants, Rory Archer, we could mention him as well. Uh, but there, you know, there were lots of migrants um, coming from Serbia, from Macedonia, from Bosnia, Herzegovina. And, you know, what are, I mean, what are their stories um, today? But also, you know, how, how did things play out during uh, socialist Yugoslavia? How did their their republics uh, in particular maintain ties with them? Right. And thank you for plugging other scholars. We love to introduce other scholars to the conversation
1: so and acknowledge their work. Okay, so it's been just such a pleasure speaking with you. So I'd like to close by uh, asking you about your current project, which I know is also transnational in focus.
0: Yeah, so um, for the last few years, uh, I've been working on a completely different project, looking at the city of Rijeka in Croatia, which um, is a contested city, as we all know. Um, in fact, Dominique Reil's a book on the Fiume crisis has really put a spotlight on what happens to Fiume Rijeka um, at the end of the First World War. But I'm interested in what happens to it after the Second World War, when it goes from belonging to Italy to belonging to Yugoslavia. And um, currently I'm working um, on a history of Rijeka as a port. Uh, Rijeka becomes Yugoslavia's most important port after the Second World War. And I'm particularly interested in how it uh, it links um, Yugoslavia to the rest of the world and what implications that has for the city itself. So it's one of these local global stories. Um, And again, always a focus on Yugoslavia's global entanglements. Uh, and in particular, through the lens of uh, one shipping company, Yugoslavia's main shipping company, which was Yugoslavia, looking at how a socialist firm, you know, succeeded in on the global capitalist seas, if you want. Uh, and another part of this project, um, or another sort of aspect of this project is, has been to work with... Um, With geographers and programmers and architectural historians and other people to develop a mobile phone app that allows you to explore uh, Rijeka's multi-layered, multi-faceted city. And so if you are ever in Rijeka, I invite you to download the free Rieka Fiume In Flux app and uh, use it to, to visit the city and explore the many different stories that can be told about it.
1: Well, your book project sounds fascinating and the app sounds really cool. So if I get to Rieka anytime soon, I will check it out and I hope our <laughs> listeners who uh, get there will do so as well. So excellent. Look forward to reading your upcoming publications and learning more about the other project. And I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with me
0: today. Thank you for giving me a chance to share about my book with your listeners um, and to, yeah, to keep thinking about this, uh, this topic. And I hope other people continue to work on it from other perspectives.